Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much. We are so incredibly grateful and thankful to be here in this moment. We are so incredibly grateful and thankful that we can have confidence that as we pray, that because of the perfect work of your son Christ, you hear us. And not only hear us, but are loving enough and powerful enough to answer our cry. Eternal God and Father, we cry out to you this morning in confession, asking Lord God that you would attend to our weary hearts, that you would Lord God forgive us in our waywardness, and that, Lord, the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, would shower us. God, we ask and we pray that you would empower your servant to speak from your word with clarity, with conviction, and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that, Lord God, you would empower your church to have attentive ears and receive that which is spoken accurately into their hearts in order that they may apply it in their lives. God, we thank you for Redeemer Church. We thank you for its leadership. We thank you for Pastor L. And we thank you for this time of rest that you have bestowed upon him. And we pray, Lord God, that this rest would not be only for the benefit of Pastor L and the McGowan family, Lord God, but this rest would be for the benefit of Redeemer as you bring their senior pastor back refreshed, filled with joy, and ready to pour out that which has been filled up in him. And God, we are eternally grateful for you, eternally grateful for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. It is an incredible joy. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. It is an incredible joy uh, to spend time with you guys on this morning. I got a chance to um, come and fellowship and worship uh, with my Redeemer family last year uh, to celebrate your anniversary. And it was a great privilege and joy then. And it is certainly a great privilege and joy today um, to be able to stand um, in, in for Pastor L, as he takes a period of rest, which I'm grateful for, um, pastors need rest. And so I'm so grateful that Pastor L has this opportunity to rest. Um, I bring you greetings from the Crawford family. Um, hopefully my wife will be able to join us for the 11 a.m. And I bring you greetings from City Light Church, where I serve as uh, the lead pastor in Vicksburg, Mississippi. But I also bring you greetings from Mission, Mississippi. Last year, when I came, uh, came to you guys, I was not a part of Mission Mississippi, but it is now my new bivocational job. And Mission Mississippi is a Christian nonprofit in this state that's dedicated to healing the racial divide by demonstrating grace across racial lines in order that our communities may have practical evidence of the gospel message. Um, we exist um, simply for 
moments like these and to see pictures like these all across our state. Um, and we have existed for 30 years. And so we are incredibly excited that we have an opportunity to celebrate our 30 year anniversary in October, October the 26th here in Jackson. You're invited, by the way. Um, but it's a great privilege that I get a chance to come and join you, not just simply as a uh, pastor, but as a president of an organization that has profound passion for the work that is happening here in Redeemer Church. And so I'm grateful to you that you have obeyed Christ in seeking to produce a unified body um, for the world to see. If you don't mind, stand to your feet as we read from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 together. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 together. Please hear God's words. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself Pray that thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax, tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. These are the holy and erring and infallible words of the living God. You may be seated. The incredible scholar and thinker and author C.S. Lewis once said that all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, the pleasure of bossing, the pleasure of patronizing, patronizing, the pleasure of ruining fun, the pleasure of gossiping, the pleasures of power, the pleasures of hatred. According to Lewis, all the worst pleasures all too often come from the seemingly best people. All the worst pleasures all too often come from the seemingly best people spiritually. But then he concludes with this. He says this. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who, grow, who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither, end quote. The point that Lewis is making is that there are fewer temptations or few temptations more dangerous than the temptations that arise when I think I am spiritually better and superior than other people. In the parables, we often see roadblocks that have the potential to obstruct healthy, authentic relationships with our God and with the people around us. Some parables highlight greed as a roadblock. Other parables highlight unforgiveness as such a roadblock. However, today I want to follow Lewis in highlighting another roadblock to healthy relationship with God and with others. One that shows up often in the camps that we uh, typically reside in. Camps that take the Bible seriously and that take our faith seriously. 
the roadblock of self-righteousness. The danger of seeing yourself as spiritually more deserving, spiritually more elite, spiritually more important based on what you do, what you know, and just simply what's in you. This is a danger that is not just as deadly as any sin that you can name, which is why precisely it, this is which rather, which is why precisely Jesus actually takes time to actually navigate through this danger with us. Jesus does not waste words when confronting his audience. And so this is important to Jesus. And so he is going to take us through a story about righteousness. This morning, I want to lock in on this story and I want to point out a few things that, that come to the surface. Number one, the ingredients. Number two, the identities. Number three, the prayers. And number four, the outcomes. The ingredients, the identities, the prayers, and the outcomes. First, the ingredients. Jesus, Jesus is likely audience for this parable in in chapter 18 is actually found in chapter 17. When you look at chapter 17, verses 20 and 22, what you see is that this, this audience includes his followers and his detractors. It includes people, people that are increasingly coming to realize that he holds the words of life, and it includes people who don't believe they need his words or even need him. However, chapter 18, verse 9, shows us exactly who Jesus has in mind within this audience of people that are for him and people who are against him. Chapter 18, verse 9, it says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. According to Luke, there are two qualities that this target audience possesses that makes them special candidates for this parable. Number one, they trusted in their own deeds for an acceptable righteousness before God. That is to say that they believed that the things they did and the things that they knew made them righteous enough to be accepted by God. They gave, they served, they prayed, they fasted, they sung, they taught, they refrained from sexual immorality, they refrained from drunkenness, they refrained from all those other clear sins. And because they did all of these things, they trusted in themselves for the necessary righteousness to be accepted by God. That's the first quality of this group. But then Luke gives us this very peculiar pairing this pairing quality that's extremely important for our meditation this morning. And that's this. The second quality is that they treated others with contempt. The Christian Standard Bible reads that they look down upon everyone else. You could say that they treated everyone else as if they were ultimately nothing, insignificant, and these two qualities, these pairing qualities that Jesus identifies in this audience are more often paired together in this life, in our life, in this current moment than we sometimes realize. You see, when you find one of these qualities, you are incredibly likely to find the other. Have you ever stopped and wondered why so many people 
who are considered to be representing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are perceived by so many as haughty, arrogant, snobbish, or even elitist. Well, let's set a few caveats, right? Let me start by saying that some of these reasons aren't fair. Oftentimes we are rejected simply because the gospel we proclaim is offensive. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18 tells us as much. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then there are other times that we are rejected because the gospel ethics and the gospel commandments that we preach stand in opposition to the world's ethics and commands. The call for greed, for example, can be seen, or the call from greed, rather, can be seen not only as difficult, but offensive in our culture. The call from sexual immorality and promiscuity can be seen not just simply as excessive, but even repressive and repulsive. The call to love sacrificially can be seen not simply as challenging, but unnecessarily weak. And so there, there are times where the gospel itself is offensive or the ethics and the commandments that spring forth from the gospel are itself offensive. However, there are other reasons that many representing the church are perceived as haughty and snobbish and arrogant and elitist. And Jesus unveils one of these reasons for disdain right here in this text. Too often, those who are associated with the church treat others both in and outside of the church with contempt. They treat others with the sort of disdain that says, I'm too important or too good, or you're not important or good enough for my time, my love, my attention. Now, this may never be audibly spoken out loud to people, but it is certainly felt and it's palpable. It's in the air. It's thick. It shows up in the distance that we create between ourselves and those people. It shows up in our unwillingness to share time and share space and share presence and share possessions and resources with those people. It may never be said out loud, but it is often deeply felt. And what lies at the heart of this contempt, what's underneath this contempt, very often what lies at the heart of this contempt is this misplaced confidence in our own righteousness. Maybe it's our credentials, maybe it's our education that whispers to our hearts that we ourselves are enough. Maybe it's our finances that whispers to our hearts that we are enough. Maybe it's our beauty, maybe it's our pedigree or our ancestry, where we came from. Maybe it's our children who are better behaved because we raised them quote unquote right. Maybe it's our knowledge of scripture that whispers to our hearts that we are enough. Maybe it's our ability to uphold a standard of obedience. We say all the right things. We do all the right things. And thus we tell ourselves that we are enough. And we hold contempt for those who don't rise to our standards. You see, all of these things have the ability to increase in us a confidence in our righteousness and to decrease in us a regard for others. Self-righteousness and contempt 
are very often two sides of the same coin. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the contrasting identities and prayers of the two characters that we find in this parable. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. In the parable, Jesus juxtaposes two men who couldn't stand farther apart on the spectrum of prestige and respect and acceptance in their ancient cultures. But they also couldn't stand farther apart on the prayers that they offer God. Let's first look at their identities of these two men. Regarding the Pharisees, or regarding the Pharisee rather, it's important for us to remember that the way the modern Christian now views the Pharisees of the, of the day, of Jesus's day, is not necessarily the way that the society of Jesus's day would have viewed these men. This original crowd that Jesus was telling this story to would have heard about the Pharisee character and quite possibly been sympathetic. Especially since it was more likely than not, most likely, that a large number of Pharisees were in the group as he was sharing the story. This audience would have been somewhat taken back by the fact that the Pharisee was not the good guy in the story because their thoughts of the Pharisees wouldn't have been quite negative as ours are, are today. Jewish historian Josephus said that the Pharisees were a certain sect of the Jews that appeared more religious than others and seemed to interpret the laws more accurately. They were known as people who follow God's law. They were known as people who received God's acceptance through their obedience to the law, though. And unfortunately, that reputation that precedes this Pharisee shapes his response to God, that he followed God's law and he received God's acceptance because he followed God's law. Now let's look at his prayer, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Maybe somewhere along the lines at the end, he said, but there for the grace of God go I, you know, after he's, after he's already talked himself up. Standing to pray, by the way, is a very normal posture in ancient Judaism. Even offering thanks to God for the piety that resides in you is not an unusual thing. In fact, when you read the Psalm of David, Psalm 26, David says this, Oh, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Here's what's different between David, however, and the Pharisee. The Pharisee appears to be praying to God, but he's unlike David because he is ultimately just using God as a starting point for his victory lap. David's prayer is filled with calls to the Lord. 
It is clear that his prayer is rooted in what the Lord has done and is doing on his behalf. The Pharisee, however, is far more excited to talk about his own righteousness and how it exceeds the righteousness of everyone else around him. He says, I fast twice a week. Judaic custom requires its adherence to fast once a year for 24 hours and our observation of the Day of Atonement. But this Pharisee says he, 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 along with the other Pharisees, took their fasting up a notch by fasting every Monday and every Thursday of the week. The praying Pharisee wants to let everyone know that all, I'm all about it. Tithes of all that I get. It appears that the Pharisee goes above and beyond tithing. He says, it's not, it's, 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 I'm taking it up a notch. Deuteronomy 14, 22 and 23 tells us that you shall tithe of all the yield of your seed that comes from the field and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name, his name dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. And we know that the, uh, the, 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 the interpretation that the rabbis produced as the time went on, we know that it included vegetables and herbs. However, this Pharisee rises above that standard. He says, listen, there is nothing on the table that I'm not tithing. So when it comes to religious piety, the Pharisee says, in the words of Aloe Black, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am, yes, I am, yes, I am. If you're listening closely, you'll see some of the self-righteousness peeping out, by the way. There's really no mention of where he is not so great, but the Lord has granted mercy in spite of. There is no significant mention of how the Lord has made him great at the things he happens to be great in. This kind of veiled posturing and posing reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, when he says that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Do you see any of that in your day? Do you see any of that in your culture? Do you see any of that in the way that we live out our faith? People that love to be seen by others. People that love the high place in the feast and the high place of the best seats in the synagogues. People that love to be greeted in the marketplace and be called by their titles. Do you see any of that in our day? Of course you do. We can't wait to tell you about everything we've done. We can't wait to show you what we're doing. We can't wait to post pictures and tell you how great we've done this week. In the name of Jesus, of course. We can't, we can't wait to humble brag about our wealth, about our possessions, about our keen intellect, about our knowledge of scripture. And too often in doing so, what we are doing is, is declaring that we are good enough. We are smart enough and doggone it, people will like us. Which should be good enough for me to be accepted by God. And that's the self-righteousness we see at play in this parable. However, as we said a moment ago, there is something else besides the self-righteousness that should be showing up in this story in the Pharisee. And what is that? Subtle hints of contempt. And you see that bubbling beneath the surface in verse 11. 
What does he say? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Verse 11 begins with the Pharisee standing by himself. It is one thing to be not unequally yoked with the unbeliever. It is one thing to need distance from those engaged in bold and arrogant sin and calling you into that sin. But something else is at work here with this Pharisee. Here, he distanced himself because he sees himself as above everyone else. He distanced himself because he is comparing and contrasting resumes. Why would I waste time around these folks? Have you seen my resume? Did you hear my record of exceptional obedience? What could I possibly gain by being close to these people? In fact, in observing the prayer of the Pharisee, what you discover is that he is not necessarily thankful to God for his mercy and granting righteousness. He feels he has what he needs regarding righteousness in his own works. He's just praising God that he's not like everybody else around him. Because in his mind, they're beneath him, which is why he stands apart from them. You see, when we don't see the mercy and grace of Christ at work in the righteousness that we possess, then we will see ourselves in better lights than we should. And we will see those around us in worse lights than we should. Instead of candidates of grace and mercy, we will see ourselves as candidates that God owes a debt to. And instead of candidates of grace and mercy, we will see others around us as candidates of our contempt, discounting them, dismissing them, and disregarding them. You see, when we lose sight of the grace of God at constant work in our lives, we lose our ability to demonstrate constant grace to others around us. And it is this that the world often senses when it peers and peeks inside of our churches. Not just the pursuit of a righteousness in Christ, but the arrogance that may be on display in our self-righteousness and the contempt that comes to the surface when self-righteousness is pronounced. But there's another character in this story. A character whose identity and prayers are completely different. And verse 13 introduces him in the identity that he walks in. Verse 13, it says, but the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And turning to the tax collector, in order to truly feel the weight of Jesus' point, we must realize that under normal circumstances, this guy would be the villain of the story. The tax collector is under no delusions here, however, concerning his own sin. It is always pointed out in his culture that he's despised. He's one of the most despised in his community. He is considered the greedy sellout to his own people because of his work and his connection to the empire. But surprisingly enough, his posture is totally different than the man that precedes him. The Pharisee goes to speak to God while congratulating himself. But the tax collector goes to God pleading for mercy from him. Listen to the prayer of the tax collector, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the posture of the tax collector, standing like the Pharisee, 
But we do something different with the words. Instead of saying standing by himself, it says standing far off. And what is the difference? One is trying to get away from the people that he believes he's too good for. The other is trying not to get too close to God because he knows that God is holier than he ever hoped to be. The Pharisee stands in prayer and pride, exalting himself. The tax collector stands in prayer and humility, begging for mercy. And to further demonstrate this, he doesn't even lift his eyes to the heavens. You see, the weight of his sin and his unrighteousness is so heavy that he does not choose to look to the heavens. But also notice the desperation in which he prays. He beats his chest, pleading with God. He is desperate for God to hear him. He does not take for granted that God is, in fact, listening to a sinner. He is begging for him to listen. Those fully aware of their sin understand that for God to even listen to our prayers is nothing short of a miraculous measure of grace and mercy towards us. The self-righteous come to God thinking that it is owed to them for him to listen. But the self-aware come to God understanding that one of the highest demonstrations of love and grace that we have is that he chooses to listen. When was the last time that you prayed, not just simply with the confidence that God listens, because you ought, through Christ, but when was the last time you prayed with the wonder and the awe at the reality that God would even listen to you? With the excitement and the overwhelming joy that God would even listen to you? So many of us see miracles when God answers prayers that we've prayed, but we oftentimes miss the wonder and the miracle of God listening when we pray. Notice the words of the prayer. He has no accolades to congratulate himself. No celebra celebratory announcements, no attention on how bad other people are compared to him. His prayer is simple and is profound. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't matter how much money I have and I've collected. It doesn't matter who my family is. It doesn't matter how much I know. All that matters that is that before this holy God right now, I am a sinner and I am in need of your mercy. He prays fully aware of his need. One scholar rightly points out that the Greek word for mercy that is used here is not the usual Greek word that you get in the New Testament for mercy, but it is a special word that's associated with sacred works performed on the day of atonement. This is what the scholar says. He says in the New Testament, the verb is used only once in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, where it refers to Jesus fulfilling the duty of the high priest by atoning for the sins of the people at the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so in putting a uniquely high priestly prayer of atonement in the mouth of a tax collector in the temple, Jesus suggestively and scandalously cast him in the role of the Jewish high priest. The man with nothing to offer, despised by all, now taking on a priestly role as he offers his simple, uneducated, undisciplined prayer of mercy to Jesus. And Jesus is saying here that this man with nothing to offer is in much better shape than the man who believes he has everything to offer because he is the only one who is real about his condition and that condition is I need you. 
When we are real about our condition before holy God, humility increases. No matter the accumulations that you have, no matter the knowledge that you possess, no matter the deeds that you've done, no matter, the, no matter whatever you have, the humility increases, the pride decreases. When we are real about our condition before a holy God. When we are real about our condition before a holy God, mercy towards people around us, no matter their lot in life, increases and contempt decreases. Now notice the outcome. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man goes home justified, declared not guilty, right before God. But only one goes home that way. The Pharisee, the law keeper, the one that's well respected, the one that's well regarded, highly regarded, was not justified that day. His favor amongst the public could not save him. His place in the social order of the day could not save him. His strict adherence to the law could not save him. Redeemer family, there are going to be people at the end of this life who were well-established, well-respected, well-regarded, and even religious adherence to the law who will close their eyes a final time in this life unjustified. God will, to, will declare to those people the same things he declared to this Pharisee, that their guilt still remains. Not because they did bad things, because we've all done bad things, but rather because they rejected the only one who could actually do something about the evil that we've all actively acted on. And the evil that still remains in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, there was only one thing that could have saved the Pharisee that day. And that was this, for him to acknowledge that he himself could not save himself. We are not self-saviors. The only thing he could have done that day was to acknowledge that his best deeds on their best days are nothing more than filthy rags. We are sinners. And finally, the only thing he could have did that day ultimately is acknowledge that his salvation could only come through trusting, trusting Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the world. We are not and cannot be self-saviors. We are unquestionably sinners and sinful. And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Pharisee did not understand that, and so it was for that reason that he was actually given what he was so quick to offer everyone else. And that was this, separation and isolation. Standing off by himself, he was left by himself. Remember the separation that he fought for. Stay at arm's length from all those people around me who we consider too unclean or too lowly to be close to or too lowly to rub shoulders with. Now he himself is met with a new brand and a new type of separation. Separation not just from the people he was trying to get away from, but separation from the God. On the other hand, there's this tax collector standing distant, standing far off. Not because he's worried about getting close to people, but because he's worried about getting too close to God and beating his chest, pleading for mercy. 
What do we even bring before God? But a clear-eyed awareness that we are sinful and a desperate desire for mercy and a willingness to simply embrace him if he would allow us as Lord and Savior. The tax collector has nothing to offer other than the awareness that he has nothing to offer. And that is plenty sufficient to God. What God needs from us is a full acknowledgement that we are not able to save ourselves and an honest plea and an honest cry for mercy. And this is where the Lord Jesus Christ will meet us in our cry for his mercy. He will meet us with mercy. Now, here's the reality. These two men bring these contrasting identities and these, and these contrasting prayers. But the truth is they are ultimately the same people. Both are in need of justification. Both are in need of mercy. Both are in need of Jesus. Unfortunately, it's only one who knows it. And that's why the outcome is so radically different. But here's another shocking piece to this parable. The Pharisee is leaving under the deception that his reliance on his own righteousness will give him access to God when, in fact, it is separating him from God and from others. But the lesson he needs to learn is in the same room with him, but his contempt won't allow him to see it. How many lessons out there, Redeemer family? How many lessons out there are there or are, are, is God putting in our path for us to learn, but our contempt for the people that hold the lessons won't allow us to catch it? You know, I really love how this passage ends. Luke chapter 18, verse 14, it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a sobering summary of the story that Jesus just told us, but it is more than a summary. It is also a glorious foreshadow of the story that's yet to unfold. The story of how the path is paved for the humble to cry out to God and be heard and be justified and be exalted is foreshadowed in those words. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How is the path paid for, paved for this, rather? It's paved through the one who humbled himself. Compare the words that we hear at the end of Luke 18, 14 with Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Listen, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, un, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you hear 
Paul's words in Philippians 2, particularly verse 8 and 9, it says he humbled himself. Christ Jesus humbled himself and God the Father exalted him above every name. Jesus gives salvation, justification, exaltation to the humble by becoming humble all the way to the cross. Even though there were no delusions of righteousness concerning Jesus. He was and is and is to come perfectly righteous. He never committed sin. There's no spot or no blemish on his coat. And yet, unlike the Pharisee, Jesus chose not to hold us at arm's length. Jesus chose not to stand apart from us and stand by himself. Rather, he came down and took on flesh and walked among us. Emmanuel walked with us. He was perfectly righteous, but instead of showering us with the contempt of a Pharisee, he showered us with mercy. How can we not do anything but humble ourselves and demonstrate mercy to those around us when the one who was perfect humbled himself for us in order that we may be showered with mercy, his humility secured for us. In Christ, we have a Savior that not, not just simply calls us to humility, but in Christ, we have a Savior who secured our justification through his own humility. Christian, how do you know whether your heart is growing in the righteousness that is found in Christ? Or how do you know that your heart is growing in the delusion of self-righteousness that believes we are saving ourselves? To say it another way, what are some signs that our hearts are leaning towards self-righteousness rather than the righteousness in Christ? Here's, here's, here's one. Self-righteousness increases your arrogance and pushes you away from those who are considered to be less righteous. All the while, oftentimes, doing it in the name of God. Self-righteousness has you quoting the Pharisee and saying things like, God, I'm glad I'm not like too much. However, righteousness that is found in Christ humbles us because it lays us bare and it shows us who we really are outside of Jesus. Sinners that are facing the wrath of a holy God. But because, of that, because that same righteousness is now ours to claim, it gives us a humble joy that we are no longer trying to keep from others. But on the contrary, we are freely and joyfully seeking to share with others, no matter their life circumstances, no matter their life condition, no matter their life position. When we are walking in the righteousness of Christ, when we are relishing and savoring the righteousness of Christ, it draws us to people. But when we are savoring and relishing and walking in our own righteousness, it repels us from the people around us. Saints of God, are you growing in humble joy? Is your desire to share the life and love of Christ with those around you? If so, it is most likely because your heart is leaning away from self-saving and self-righteousness. And it is leaning ever increasingly towards the righteousness that has been secured for you. And that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Christ is our righteousness. On Christ we stand. All other ground is sinking sand.
Let us pray. God in heaven, again, we are so incredibly grateful for this privilege that we have to pray and to seek your face and to have great confidence that you hear us because of the perfect work of your son, because he humbled himself in obedience all the way to the cross. We have life and life eternal. We have righteousness. We have mercy. We have grace. We have access. We have relationship. We can call you Abba, Father, because of what your son has done on our behalf. God, seal that truth in our hearts. Sear it in such a way that the flesh, world, and devil cannot rob us with lies of self-righteousness. That we cannot delude ourselves into thinking that we somehow have earned what it is that you have freely given. Remind us, Lord God, when we are engaging our neighbors who may not necessarily have, have it all together like some others that we may know. Remind us, Lord God, that it is only because of your righteousness that we stand. And may we be willing and committed to give the same mercy that we've received to the world around us. God, we love you so much and we give you all the thanks.